0: It's time, of course, to join uh, Harvey Stockman for more of his reflections from Asia. And, of course, this is a personal view programme. History did not repeat itself in Japan recently, though very obviously legions of leftist demonstrators were probably hoping that it would. Judged by today's standards, in the weeks before September the 18th, huge demonstrations were taking place in Tokyo against security legislation bills placed before the Diet by the government of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. These would have permitted, in certain restricted circumstances, combat missions overseas for Japan's self-defence military forces, thereby ending the post-war policy of using the military only for the defence of Japan. The demonstrators saw these bills as a violation of Article 9, the famous no-war clause in the Constitution imposed during the American occupation of Japan after the war. The Abe government rejected this assertion. As the demonstrations gained limited momentum, the leftists were probably dreaming of a rerun of 1960. Then, massive demonstrations against a bill revising the 1952 US-Japan security treaty forced the resignation of then-Prime Minister Nobosuke Kishi, the grandfather of current Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, though they were unable to prevent Kishi securing the final passage of the security treaty in the Japanese Diet. Perhaps the 2015 leftists would have been assisted in their dreaming if President Barack Obama had been suddenly planning a formal visit to Japan at this time. This is because the key to the so-called success of the legendary 1960 protests was the fact that U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower was then planning in the last year of his presidency to become the first U.S. president to visit Japan since World War II. Naturally, the predominantly leftist plus student demonstrators in Tokyo were against the visit as well as the treaty, pundits in Washington warned that any such visit might be dangerous for presidential security. So Eisenhower's press secretary, James Haggerty, was sent to Tokyo to see if the danger was for real. He was met at Haneda Airport by the then U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Douglas MacArthur II, relative to General Douglas MacArthur, But before their car could leave Haneda Airport, it was attacked by activist students, almost certainly from the far-left Zenkakuren sect. Their car was a wreck by the time the police rescued Haggerty and the ambassador 15 minutes later, and a helicopter was able to land and fly them both to Tokyo. How Haggerty and MacArthur escaped serious injury remains a mystery to me, but photos of the wreckage of their embassy car flashed around the world, leaving Prime Minister Kishi with no choice. He had to accept the loss of face and to advise Eisenhower, who had already started his Asian tour en route to Tokyo, that he would have to cancel his visit. 5 days later the demonstrators underlined the danger when a student was killed outside the diet it was in reality the loss of face from the cancellation of ike's visit that brought about kishi's subsequent resignation but before he left office, the revised U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, the main objective of the demonstrations, was still finally passed in the Diet on June the 22nd and implemented on July the 15th, the same day that Kishi resigned. That revised treaty, made necessary because, among other things, the original 1952 version of the security treaty allotted domestic policing powers to the United States, the revised treaty has remained in operation ever since 1960. All of which goes to show that you may demonstrate against one thing but actually achieve something else quite different. In 1960, the mass demonstrations sought to block the passage of the revised U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, but their only satisfaction was that Kishi felt obliged to quit while President Eisenhower stayed away. So what have the latest demonstrations actually achieved? In a phrase, not very much. If they had managed to halt or obstruct the final passage of the new security legislation through the Upper House of Councillors, Prime Minister Abbe, with his secure parliamentary majority, might have had to return the legislation to the Lower House of Representatives for its final passage. But he did not even have to do that. Abbe has a secure personal grip on the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, while Kishi definitely did not. All that the opposition achieved in 2015 was to delay final passage of the pending security legislation until the very early hours of Saturday, September 19th. The demonstrations and the opposition were unable to bring to bear the pressure that would have caused further delay, let alone pressure that would have weakened Abe's position. In large part, the major difference between 1960 and 2025 was in the numbers. In 1960, there was something very close to mass mobilisation of an aroused citizenry on the streets of Tokyo, plus all the activist students. In 2015, by contrast, only a relatively few were aroused and there was no mass mobilisation. Media reports hailed meetings of a few thousand demonstrations, whereas 1960 press reports often referred to tens or even hundreds of thousands. In a press interview during his visit to the United States earlier this year, Abe recalled sitting on his grandfather's knee at the Prime Minister's residence in 1960 while students tried to lay siege to it. No such attempts were reported this year. In 1960, police in Tokyo did occasionally lose control of areas as a result of the demos. In 2015, the police remained securely in charge. Had this year's demonstrations really aroused the opposition, there should have been a sharp rise in approval ratings for the Democratic Party of Japan, the DPJ, the main opposition group. No such rise is as yet observable. Instead, Prime Minister Abe has achieved what his grandfather could not attain. Despite controversy, Abe has been elected to a further term as president of the Liberal Democratic Party. But one aspect of the reaction to the recent prolonged Japanese diet debate has so far seemingly escaped well-deserved criticism, and that was China's flagrant interference in the internal affairs of Japan, something which... If it was to happen in the reverse direction, was Japan's interference in China's internal affairs would have then led to the controlled Chinese media being up in arms. The story was briefly reported by Kyoto News Agency late on September 18th. Quote, China on Friday threw its support behind Japanese opposition lawmakers and protesters trying to block final approval of security bills that would allow Japan's troops to fight overseas for the first time since World War II. We have noted that Japanese voices opposing the new security bills are becoming louder every day. China's Foreign Ministry spokesman Hong Lei told a regular press briefing. We hope that Japan listens to the righteous calls of its own people, learns from the lessons of history, and sticks to the path of peaceful development. He made the remarks as Japan's ruling parties were trying to bulldoze the bills through Parliament as early as around midnight. Unquote. On September 19th, the South China Morning Post put a story on the front page under the headline, China backs protesters in Japan over security bills, attributing it to Reuters. Now, let's be clear what is wrong here. This is not just one media outlet reporting what is being said by another media. This is an official of the Chinese government, the official spokesman of the foreign ministry, endorsing and approving the actions of the opposition to what is ostensibly a friendly foreign government, Japan. This is arrogant interference in the internal affairs of Japan, telling the people of Japan what China expects them to do. One can only wonder, did the Tokyo government or the Japanese embassy in Beijing at least make a strong protest? As they reported on the demonstrations and parliamentary passage, the international media deployed some very interesting perspectives. Anxious to support the Chinese government line that Abe's changes could destabilise regional security, Xinhua News Agency saw irony in the fact that the new security bills were passed 84 years from the day when Japan launched its aggression against China, referring to what is known as the Manchurian Incident. That is, on September the 18th, 1931, Japanese military officers blew up a portion of a Japanese-controlled railroad at Mukden, now called Shenyang, and blamed it on Chinese dissidents before launching their aggression. Xinhua's comment was that 84 years later, Japan, led by Abe, betrayed its 70-year pacifist stance and is marching again on a road to war under the same banner of self-defense it used decades ago when it waged a war of aggression in Asian countries. An article in The London Economist offered a very different perspective, since the new bills, quote, will also make it possible for Japanese troops to be sent on UN peacekeeping missions in stronger roles, and that an interesting early test could come in South Sudan, where both Japan and China contribute to the United Nations effort. Under the new laws the self-defence forces could find themselves fighting alongside Chinese soldiers should they come under attack, unquote. But The economists considered the main effect of the changes, quote, is to allow the SDF to help America and its allies even if Japan is not under attack itself. It means that the long-standing bilateral security pact between America and Japan ceases to be a one-way street, obliging the United States to defend Japan but not the other way around, unquote. Undoubtedly, one undercurrent in Japanese opposition to the new treaty has been anti-Americanism. For, as Jonathan Sobel observes in the Financial Times, quote, a central question for many Japanese is whether loosening restrictions on the military will put Japan on a more equal footing with the United States, as Shinzo Abe has argued, or, as critics contend, will it instead turn Japan into an American deputy sheriff placing its new military powers at Washington's disposal? Leftist politicians and peace campaigners are the most vocal Opponents of this view, but they are not alone. Those on the right also feel we should not get caught up in American wars of aggression. Unquote. Such attitudes are partly fueled by Japanese memories of the war in Iraq, though they have existed in various forms ever since the Vietnam War. The Economist provides some fascinating figures to emphasize that China seems oblivious to the impact its own military ambition is having on its neighbors, including Japan. China's defense spending in real terms doubled in the years 2005 to 2009, increased by nearly 50% in the five years after that, and will rise by 10% this year despite the slowing economy. This year, on the other hand, Japan's military budget has increased by 2% to $42 billion, and next year will go up by 2% again. China's military budget was $30 million in 2005, reaching $140 billion in 2015. Japan's military budget was $45 billion in 2005 and $42 billion this year. It adds that a Stockholm think tank estimates that the $132 billion China said it spent on defense in 2014 was actually probably nearer to $220 billion. It concludes that, quote, almost every other country in the Asia-Pacific region is also increasing its military spending. But they are doing so in response to China's build up and its hard line approach to the many territorial disputes it is involved in with its neighbours.